In 2013, a group of people who were interested in queer history met at the home of the late Stuart Butler. Stuart, who was 83 at the time, showed them dozens of boxes of papers he had collected and saved throughout his 35-year career as an LGBT plus activist. Stuart then asked the group what was going to happen to his archives when something happened to him. The result was the creation of the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana. The Archives Project chronicles the cultural and historical materials of the LGBT Plus community in Louisiana. The mission of the project is to preserve, protect, promote, and encourage the preservation of these materials and make them available for future generations to access for research and study. Quiet Conversations is proud to have the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana as a part of this podcast. If you'd like to contribute, please visit them at lgbtarchives.org forward slash donate forward slash. That's lgbtarchives.org forward slash donate forward slash. Acknowledging and celebrating our differences is essential in hearing another person's views as it can help you approach conversations with a willingness to learn. Keep in mind that your peers may also have different reasons motivating their viewpoints and actions. My name is Arthur Severio and welcome to Quiet Conversations. According to Gallup News, Washington, D.C., most black Americans, 58 percent, do not have a preference between the terms black and African-American when asked which term they would rather people use to describe their racial group. The one in three who express a preference divide evenly between preferring each term. From the Urban Institute, say African-American are black, but first acknowledge the persistence of structural racism. Montgomery, Alabama is a special place. After my friend Mark picked me up in his yellow convertible, we visited Hank Williams Sr.'s grave, and later that day was when I realized that I was standing on the steps of the Montgomery Courthouse where Martin Luther King stood addressing the crowd that followed him from Selma. The town looks and smells like true Southern Gothic fiction. It feels like a place that Bobby Gentry sings about in one of her songs. Well, I have a friend, and bless his heart, he invited me up here, and you know, things don't always work out, and I always wind up landing in a better place, and it gives me the time to be able to do my podcast, and to get it off the ground, and this is such a beautiful place. I'm like an 18-year-old kid starting over again. Is the uh, house in the city, or You ready where it's at? It's next to Beaver Lake, the kind of neighborhood where people have to pay $50 to walk their dog. You know, I've never been there in the fall, but for for like four summers in a row, I worked full time for legal services and I saved my vacation and took it in one chunk. We were into the horse world back in those days. My daughter's riding teacher was the riding instructor at an upscale girls camp at Black Mountain, North Carolina which is just up the road from Asheville. She recruited me to come help her teach riding lessons in return so Anna could go to camp for free. You know, these were pricey girls camps. And so I did that for two years at Black Mountain. And then this woman at a, a even more fancy camp, there's a private boarding school called the Asheville School. You could see the Biltmore. In the summer, they let this 
fancy girls camp take over the the school and had used the dormitories for the campers in and they had the horses were brought down from Holland's College riding program. The second two years I had my own room and I teach these riding lessons every night when riding is over I could go into town and do whatever I wanted to. It's quite a contrast in New Orleans. I have like a great opportunity for you at this point. I, I saw you text that you said you had ordered a Rolleiflex. I learned to take pictures on a Rolleiflex. I was a reporter for the Delta Democrat Times from 1970 to 1973, and they had a full-time staff photographer, but it was a small paper, and the reporters were expected to take their own photos when they went to cover something. Rolleiflex, twin lens cameras, if you could just check out, they also had some Yashica mats, but they were twin lens cameras. They had no light meter on them, nothing. You had to kind of learn what f-stop and speed to put them on. I could keep one picture. That's when I started taking pictures was when I had that Rolleiflex or Yashica mat, one or the other, with me all the time. Well, I'm really proud of you for photographing, you know, continuing to. And It just feels so alive, Penny. You know, when we're, like you talking about pictures, it brings us to life. Oh, well, tell, tell me about this podcast. It's like, it's amazing when you're doing stuff, how people pop into your life, you know, or thoughts of people. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And that's well, that's what it's about for me more than anything, Penny. It's about like you talking about like, taking pictures of Brisson. The follow-up to that, uh, you know, remember we had the show, and that was so much fun. I think back on that, and I just can't tell you what how gratifying it was that you had me and Bethany. Since then, I had made a discovery. It was in the vein of taking the pictures of Brisson, which was a remarkable thing, but it was something that I had forgotten, and it wasn't quite the stature of meeting Brisson. The 20th century's greatest street, that kind of photography, the capture in the moment. Less than six months after that, another encounter with an internationally famous photographer who I had never heard of at the time. I happened to come across the negative. Again, it was an old uh, Rolleiflex or Yashigamat while I worked for the paper. This fellow was in town. And somebody brought him to my house for me to do a story about him, this famous photographer who I'd never heard of. I think it was some kind of civil rights group that was doing like economic development work in the Mississippi Delta. Well, his name was Ernest Cole, a black South African who had learned to take pictures and had done some work for a magazine in South Africa and was surreptitiously documenting the apartheid world, taking, you know, the kind of street photography type pictures of, he befriended the New York Times correspondent, Joseph Lelyville. He was a correspondent assigned to South Africa. He was able to spirit away his negatives and fly to New York, where Random House published House of Bondage. And it's a book of his photographs. It was the first time people in the world seen real photographs of the blacks and whites, the, the different worlds that they lived in in South Africa. They're excellent photographs. Exiled. He, he could never go home again. He couldn't go back and see his mother and his brothers. And he ended up, the Ford Foundation gave him a grant to come and document life in the South. Now, he did photos in Harlem. But he was uh, this small, slight fellow 
who seemed very sad. While Penny goes to answer the door, let's take a moment here to learn about Lady Bird Johnson. In the early 80s, one of my best friends was a trans woman named Terryanette Winston, who grew up in the projects on the south side of Chicago. Miss Winston was six feet tall, she had caramel colored skin, and a big old Tremaine Hawkins forehead. It was her performance of Fanny Flagg that was my introduction to the Lady Bird Johnson Help Beautify America campaign by planting a tree, a bush, or a shrub. Being quarantined during COVID, a book and a podcast came out about Lady Bird's diaries. Lady Bird was smarter than most people gave her credit for. The Office of Economic Opportunity was part of her vision in creating the war on poverty by providing jobs and training for those young people growing up in poverty and condemned by lack of economic opportunity, repeating the cycle all over again. So I'm going through my old negative files and I tap them in letter envelopes and I'm thumbing through because I put the date at the top right-hand corner and I kept looking for New Orleans. Ernest Cole, there it was. And I said, Ernest Cole? Well, that's when I pulled out and there were these eight strips of negatives, an old rolling flag of this man. I remembered the story of what happened. I never wrote a story. I never made any prints. It was during COVID. I was, you know, couldn't go anywhere. So I mailed the negatives to, we actually have a really good lab here, right here in Montgomery, right near my house, actually, that digitalizes the process for people who shoot film. And I was stunned. I just was like, I mean, it wasn't like the world's greatest picture, but it was a damn good picture of this man who is now, I mean, there's a documentary being made about him. Magnum Photos has he represents his estate and has all his negatives. And there's this whole mystery about how he ended up, and then how a, a whole cache of negative of his negatives were just mysteriously discovered in a Swedish bank vault. I ended up being interviewed by a guy in England with Magnum and this fellow Leslie Madeleine, who is his nephew in South Africa. Aperture, they just put out a reissue of his the book, a new edition. And then he, di- he died kind of unknown, and he was only like maybe in his late 40s. It was just a sad story. He, it's like he had depression or something. Uh, I think it was because he couldn't, he couldn't go home again. Uh, you know, he would have been, he was in exile from his country. But they're beautiful, be- they're beautiful photographs. And, you know, it's really funny, Arthur, uh, to put everything in context, the Voting Rights Act was passed in, what, 1965? When was Selma? 65? I, you know, in 1965 is when I got married. I was in school. I graduated high school in 1962. Where I grew up is in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Mississippi Delta is at least 50% black. In some parts are more black than white. My community was probably 60% white. I don't want to say it was apartheid, but it was everybody had their separate parts of town they lived in. And there's separate schools. I don't know how old you are, Arthur, if you remember when everything was totally segregated. You know, colored entrances, mm-hmm. old doctor's offices. There was a separate hospital called White Hospital was the King's Daughter's Hospital. And then there was a private hospital some doctors built. It was called the Colored King's Daughters because 
they wouldn't let black people into white people's hospital. And that's the way things were. I, I remembered when I was a child, I was in the grocery store with my mother, who was a very kind of genteel. She wasn't from well-to-do, but her father was an educator and she had gone to nursing school in Memphis. And that's where she met my daddy, who was a doctor. And he was the first person he was the youngest of 12 children and the only one to ever go to college. So they didn't come from any kind of well-heeled Old South background. But then, of course, it was rigid segregation. The guard man would come to the back door. My mother kept her separate glass for him to drink water out of. It was his glass, and we couldn't drink water out of it. And it was just the way things were. But I remember having kind of a an awareness of, of unfairness when I was a child in the grocery store with my mother, and I observed something about a matronly black woman who was shopping, had her buggy, and I said something, maybe about the way she was dressed, but I said, Mama, look at that colored lady, and my mother very quietly said, oh, Penny, she said, that is a colored woman. There is no such thing as a colored lady, and it was like, huh? And she was meaning that lady was something that was like a social level that no black person could ever have. I couldn't understand why that was. It, it was the first time I'd ever stopped to think about why this didn't seem fair. And she looked just as nice as anybody else. It was just kind of the, maybe my first awakening of that this world that I was living in and growing up in was not right. And then I was fortunate enough to, to get a job that paid more with this. There was something called the Office of Economic Opportunity. It's a federal program to funnel money into the poor areas for job training for low-income people. And I got a job teaching women or anybody, they were mostly women that came, and it was very basic education. And I was among these young people who were hired to be a teacher. And my co-workers were mostly young black people who grew up in my town that were my age in early 20s at this point. That we're supposed to do lesson plans and plan the next day's class. And instead, we'd just sit around and bullshit and tell stories and laugh and make jokes. It was my first exposure on a social basis. Conversation with black people that were my age, that were, you know, my peers that had grown up in my community separate from white people. You know, we didn't, we couldn't go to the same school. We had no exposure to one another. It was like a revelation because they were like regular people. And of course, being a newspaper reporter and covering the stories that I did, it was a great newspaper. It was one of the best papers in the country, actually, the Delta Democrat Times. The, what it exposed me to, it just was eye-opening. And, of course, my family thought I was going bonkers because I was turning into this liberal person because I didn't hold the same views. I still was kind of ignorant about the whole civil rights movement because there really wasn't much of anything happening in my community. Greenville, Mississippi, was the most progressive community in the state of Mississippi and didn't have the demonstrations, the violence, the Percy family that was a prominent 
Delta, you know, well-heeled, prominent literary or U.S. senators and William Alexander Percy wrote Lanterns on the Levee, a Walker Percy, the writer, the moviegoer. The Percy family kept the clan out of my county. They never took a foothold. So it was just a more progressive place. I didn't have a real sense what all was going on in the world, like the Selma to Montgomery March. I didn't really know about it until I moved here and kind of kind of learned everything once I moved here in 1973. In November 1972, six people died in the Ralph Center fire, one from smoke inhalation, and five women, one of which was pregnant, was forced to jump to their desk from the 15th floor windows of the beauty salon where they were having their hair done. Ladders brought by firefighters weren't tall enough to reach the 15th floor windows. Local news channels who were there to capture the event on film, including the women jumping to their deaths, was broadcast locally and nationally. Here's an excerpt from the interview I did with Regina. I was working at the Saratoga parking garage uh, in the booth downstairs collecting the tickets and the money for the, for the uh, garage. People would come in and then the, uh, the valet would take their car and take it upstairs. That was on Loyola Avenue and Tulane. It's still there. It's still a parking garage. But that is where I saw the Ross Center fire and the sniper on the Howard Johnson, the roof of the Howard Johnson. I was in my booth the day that the sniper was shooting at everybody, and the police were set up on the roof of the Saratoga parking garage trying to take him out. And bullets were ringing through the parking garage. They told me to sit, sit on the floor, and I sat on the floor. Well, all that was going on. It lasted about three hours. I remember that, watching that on TV. Yeah, well, in the Ross Center fire was real bad. A pregnant lady jumped out of the building and landed on the roof of the parking garage. That was the, the big hotel fire. They had showed it on Channel 6 News, and they said, this could be disturbing, and they showed you the woman jumping out. And later on, they said she was pregnant. She ended up dying when she on impact. So, bless her heart. It was hard. It's hard to watch. So, well, I heard I've been through it all day because the fire department and the police department were get on the roof of the building where I was at again. Regina was still living as a boy, but she was beginning to say, as she says, dress and drag. She and Reggie were living in the French Quarter, a melting pot full of creatives and a lot more accepting than on the outskirts of New Orleans. The Stonewall and sexual revolutions had made it down the Mississippi just yet, and me, being from Livingston, brought up the question I had to ask. So tell me this. How did people receive y'all being, what was the word, mixed couple, mixed race couple? Yeah. Uh, Well, there were a lot of uh, strange looks, and a lot of people didn't understand why Reggie was allowed in the bar because they didn't have a lot of black people going in white bars at that time. Well, there was a black bar, the Safari Lounge. I went there with Reggie to see the drag shows there the Saturday night up there, and we went to go see it. And I was probably one of two white people in the bar. The bars didn't mix. You had mixed bars as far as uh, lesbians and gays, but you didn't have black and white mixed clubs. And I had met the owner, Phil Estes. He came out on a Sunday, and he met us, and he sat and talked with Reggie and me, and he liked Reggie, and he says, well, so happy to have you 
come in and see how the other half lives. And he was always joking with Reggie. But he was good friends with us. Yeah, there didn't been a lot of black people in back then. A lot of black people didn't want to go into the white bars anyway because, you know, they felt self-conscious because Lafitte still didn't let blacks or women in their bar at the time. And, and there you all are. Yeah. I think Reggie was probably the first black person let in Lafitte's. They wouldn't let us sit up front. They made us go sit in the back by the sound booth. But he said, yeah, y'all can come in, but you got to stay back there. And this is because I knew the owner. While Regina and Reggie faced the challenges of being a mixed couple, racial tensions were high in 1972. Blacks became frustrated with economic conditions that did not improve, despite advancements that were made by civil rights. In October of 1972, while the ship, the Kitty Hawk, was bombing North Vietnam, its crew members, who were black and white, attacked each other. After my conversation with Regina, my interest in Mark Essex was renewed. It had been a long time since I read the book, The New Orleans Sniper, a phenomenological case study constituting the other. Mark Essex was more than an average student who was popular in high school. While growing up in Kansas, he told his mama that he didn't see much difference between dating black and white girls. In the beginning of his service to the Navy, his experiences were positive, forming a close friendship with one of his superiors. So I went to my old standbys, Wikipedia and YouTube. And of course, I fell into that deep YouTube rabbit hole and came across a news clip of someone talking about Mark Essex, echoing my beliefs for the reasons why Mark Essex was so angry. Roy Anderson is a filmmaker and historian. His documentaries are of tragedies, mainly in South Louisiana. I asked him what he thought about the route center fire. Was it an accident or was it set? Gosh, I mean, since I was a child, I always heard that it was, well, it was something electrical, the wiring and all that something. But after my research, the fire chief and most, most people suspect it was an arson because the big fire that happened around lunchtime, there was actually an earlier fire that morning uh, in the lamplighter club in a dressing room. They put that fire out supposedly. And then the next thing you know, there's a huge fire happening one floor below that in the ski chalet room where the beauty salon was, was right down the hall. So you have these two fires that happen within hours. So I suspect, you know, either, I, I suspect, and also Joe Ralt, who owns the building, thinks it may have been Mark Essex planning out his his shooting spree on the Howard Johnson's top building because that happened a month later. They're so close together in proximity to those buildings. Maybe he was trying to burn out the top of the roof so police sharpshooters could not reach him during his rampage that Sunday. But that's speculation. And they also say that the fires look very similar. Like the Rawls Center fire, the, when you look at the pictures and you study what, what the fire actually looked like, and then compare it to the fires that were started at the Howard Johnson's. They're very similar in appearance. So that's another reason, including Joe Rawls, why I think he speculates it might have been Mark Essex who started that fire, but we really don't know. I mean, to this day, that fire is unsolved. And then also the upstairs lounge fire, unsolved, which is, I think we know who did that, but. That's what infuriates so many people. 
why these huge cases in, in, in our city's history remain unsolved. Shortly after his enlistment, he learned of the everyday racism from his white fellow servicemen. In the summer of 1970, Essex had become radicalized. In August of 1970, he got into a physical altercation with a white supervisor. After hearing the officer say how beautiful it must have been in decades past when A went to sea, it was below decks in the galley. After going AWOL, the Navy discharged him for unsuitability. He was left bitter and he felt he was treated unfairly by the Army who knew the discrimination he had endured while serving in the Army. He then moved to New Orleans where he moved to Central City on Dryad Street in November 1972. He saw firsthand how people were living in poverty in the city's housing projects. He went home to see his mama and she thought he seemed upbeat like his old self. But in that same month, in November, at Southern University in Baton Rouge, which had a population around 10,000. Students became fed up with the way the state spent only half as much money on black students and their facilities as they did on predominantly white colleges and universities. They were tired of not only inadequate funding, but being overcrowded and having low quality food. They also had improper housing with their mattresses worn out and torn up with holes in it and in such bad shape that they slept on the floor instead of the beds in their dormitories. They demanded more classes in African-American history and culture. They also wanted a separate board of trustees. For over a month, students boycotted classes and held demonstrations on campus. They even overtook the Southern football field and stopped a game. And as we know, Southern has a huge football following. Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards ordered the campus closed, citing safety reasons and sent in the National Guard and police officers who tried using intimidation tactics to stop the protest. The students met with the university president and asked him to go to the police, demanding the release of two students who were arrested in the protest that happened days prior. The president agreed and told the students to wait for him in his office. Meanwhile, other students set fire to the registrar's office and other university buildings. An unknown call to the police said that the students were holding the university president hostage, even though that the president had left the campus. 300 police and National Guard officers arrived in full riot gear, along with a tank, surrounding the administration building, ordering students to come outside. As students began to emerge, officers launched tear gas at them. One student threw one of the cans right back at the officer, and shots were fired from the tank and surrounding officers. When the smoke cleared, two students were left dead, and no one was ever charged for the murder of those two students. And here's more from my conversation with Roy Anderson, talking about how the riots at Southern University was the final straw to break Mark Essex. Well, I remember like in Livingston, watching the Mark Essex thing on TV, and the impact that it had on me, I was only like six years old. And it was the Baton Rouge News, I believe, that had it on. It could have been WWL. You know, we had those rabbit ears back then. So my daddy and I were watching it. And I remember, imagine living in New Orleans and seeing that news clip play over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, it was something else. He snapped. Uh, and you were in Livingston Parish in Baton Rouge. That's what made him snap, really. There was a uh, an uprising at Southern University with the students and the and the, the 
faculty and there was a protest on the campus and a couple of unarmed students got shot and killed by the, the sheriff's office. Uh, and that's, and Mark Essex was in New Orleans at that time. No one got arrested. No one got fingered. That's what made him go over the edge. He actually wrote a letter saying that he was going to avenge the two brothers that were killed. And he kind of, he sent a warning. He sent it to a WWL, like on Rampart Street. And they sat on that letter. They didn't really release that to the public. And the NOPD didn't do, say anything about the letter. It was actually uh, New Year's Eve. He, he shot some cops right outside of Central Lockup. He killed a black officer. Young guy, he's like 19 years old, uh, a Loyola student. And then a week later was his rampage, which was, which was planned out. They found in his apartment all the map, the Howard Johnson was circled, so he was planning it out. He sent that letter out to WWL. They didn't release that letter to the public. He says he's going to avenge the, the shootings of those Southern University kids who were, who were shot and killed and no one was fingered. But it wasn't until like the end of January, late that January, that they finally released that letter. But had they released that letter earlier, maybe you wouldn't have had that Sunday rampage where he got up on the Howard Johnson. Someone might have known, hey, like a, this handwriting looks familiar, kind of like with the Unabomber, like when his manifesto came out, the brother right away knew that that was his brother's, the way his language was. So, I mean, he was hanging out with a lot of really like uh radical like uh, the black panthers and all he was kind of he was an ordinary guy they say in kansas he actually dated a white girl in kansas something happened in the navy and then that shooting at southern in baton rouge that flipped after i just went berserk i asked historian frank perez how the city government officials and the news media handled the news of these two fires there were two major fires in New Orleans. One was at the Ralt Center, and the other was at the, the Howard Johnson. And the death toll from both of those uh, was barely a fraction of the death toll of the upstairs lounge. And yet, the Ralt Center tragedy and the fire at the Howard Johnson garnered a lot of media attention. Uh, every politician had something to say. Uh, the mayor had statements on both. There were there was a day of mourning, and and the city really was galvanized for, and, and around those fires. I'd like to thank today's guests, Regina Adams, Roy Anderson, and Mr. Frank Perez. I'd like for you to take a moment to think about the difference between apartheid, racism, and homophobia. Are they really different? Here's my special guest, Penny Weaver. Story, but I think it was actually before I became a reporter. I, I became a reporter in 1970, and the reason I got the job is I was friends with some people who were reporters there. It was a fellow named Bob Boyd. There was going to be this black theater group out of New Orleans. They were called the Free Southern Theater. It was a they were coming. They were traveling through the South performing, who was it that wrote it? It's called Slave Ship. There's some famous black written play. And they were coming to do a performance in Greenville. And Bob was going to cover it for the Delta Democrat Times. And he invited me, him and his wife. And so we went. It was at a community center. And there were 
I don't know. There may have been two or three other white people there. I don't know. But we ended up, Bob wanted to be on the front row because he was taking pictures for the paper. You know, he was covering it. And we were there, and it was packed full. It was like a community building in the housing project. And it was so full, there were all these teenagers who were, like, having to watch in through the windows. But they couldn't get everybody in. And it was very emotional play. Because we were in the front row, the players would come and shake their chains in front of our face. It's like we were almost being a tool in the plagues and that you were the only white people in this crowd of black people and feeling this sort of, I don't want to call it hatred, but kind of an antipathy that had been stoked up by very evocative performance. So we kind of making our way out. And the young people had been so riled up, they were beating on the cars. It was scary as shit. One of them snatched Bob's camera out of his hand, and they were beating on the car. We were trying to get out. Bob had a little girl, a toddler, and they had hired their babysitter, who was an older black woman. Hey, He had to take her home, and he was afraid to drive his car back down in that project where she lived. So he borrowed my car. <laughs> So he wouldn't be recognized. He was scared. It was a very helpful experience because you realize what it felt like to be the other because of the color of your skin, to be kind of hated or despised or looked down upon or the way white people, some of them, had treated black people. You know, we'd beat them up for no reason or shoot them or lynch them or whatever. And to be hated because of the color of their skin. And I thought it was, I mean, it was scary, but it, you know, it was also something that gave you something to really think very deeply about, to kind of give you an understanding, to help open your own kind of dumb eyes to the world. I feel like I had some experiences that a lot of white people never have. This may be, I'm not saying perfect, you know, nobody gets over, you know, it's whatever, but it sort of helped me to be, say, more enlightened than other people my age who grew up in that separate apartheid kind of system. And I'm just really fortunate. Quiet Conversations is written and researched by me and produced with the best of the information that I have found at the time of this broadcast. The speaker's views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of myself, this podcast, or anyone else. The material information presented here is for entertainment purposes only. The Quiet Conversations podcast name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of me, Arthur Severio, and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, and follow on Apple Podcasts. My name is Arthur Severio, and I thank you for joining us. If they ask you what day it is, Tell them it's your day If they ask you how it's going Tell them it's going on
it is Tell them it's your time And no matter how dark it gets Go on and shine Go on and shine No Oh, regret.